You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Barman, we're back with The Small Print, and today my guest is Chris, who was actually one of the co-authors on The Future Starts Now, the book that I've just put together with Bloomsbury. To start off with, Chris, we always like our guests to introduce themselves the way you would like to be introduced. Excellent. Hi, Bronwyn. So uh, I'm Chris Yu. I'm an executive director at the Tony Blair Institute, which is a nonprofit headquartered in London. We work worldwide to uh, help uh, leaders and governments build better, more prosperous, more open and inclusive societies. And I've got a particular focus on technology, technology policy, and the role that tech can play in building a better, brighter future for all of us. That's definitely not an objective that anyone can really argue with. Who doesn't want a better, brighter, more prosperous future? And I do like the way you've said that, because I think one of the big issues that we are facing as society is there seems to be this sort of false dichotomy that is being permeated through society, saying that we kind of have to choose either between prosperity and sustainability. And that's something, it's an idea that I really want to push back on. I think that coming from the world of futures, it's all about opening up the future to a more divergent possibilities ahead rather than sort of trying to limit our futures. So I love what you had to say there. But maybe you could start off with by diving a bit more into why you think that you are excited about the convergence of technology and politics right now. Yeah, I think it's such um, an exciting place to be because when you look at the world around us, um, you realize that um, what's happening in technology in the broader sense of the word, right, not just the software on your desktop or the phone in your pocket, but all of the uh, impacts across the different sectors of economy and all the ways that it affects our society and our personal interactions. Those are big, dramatic shifts. And then you look at um, our politics and our political institutions and our governments, and most of those are institutions born in the 19th or 20th centuries for a world before the internet, before you had the sorts of technology at our disposal now. Um, and as a consequence, a lot of the uh, policy conversations and a lot of the political debate um, doesn't really, I think, get traction with the issues that are going to be shaping the future. And it's partly because um, it's so difficult and complicated if it's not a world that you're used to navigating and thinking about and you haven't got the resource around you to help you make sense of it. Um, and it's partly because something quite dramatic changed. And so lots of times when you try to apply common sense to these new problems, you don't really get an answer which functions or sometimes you get an answer which does more harm than good. Um, so that I think, you know, trying to cut through that, trying to make sense of it and trying to um, tell the story in terms that um, uh, really resonate with people, not people who spent their whole life in tech, but just people in all different fields is exciting and important work um, to do, right? And I think the whole debate, like you say, often collapses into something which is more um, confrontational than it needs to be, right? And if you want to boil it all the way down, you know, you often find politicians and policy people who say, well, you know, all these technologists are, you know, doing all this stuff, not paying heed to the risks. It's very, very dangerous. We've got to slow it all down or stop it. And they don't really understand and then you go and talk to the, the technologists and the people changing the world with um, these new breakthroughs. And then they will say, um, you know, why can't government just be better or smarter? Or why don't they understand that, you know, this thing that I'm doing with data or AI or whatever else is going to be revolutionary? Why don't they get it? And if I can stand my company up in six months and make these breakthroughs, why does it take government five years to change the law? Um, but actually, you've got to educate both sides in that conversation. Right, like government is difficult and complicated and messier than running a business, um, but equally politics has a lot to learn from from tech. So that's a long way of saying I think we need more people who stand on the edge of those two worlds can try to navigate both of them and make a bit of sense of it. Because to come back to your point earlier, we should be optimistic about the future and for sure, like there are a lot of challenges in the world today, but there is so much potential for good. Um, and we've got to find a way to access that without tipping everything into a conversation about all the bad stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good point because too often these conversations are about tech and business versus governments. And when do we become enemies? We're all supposed to be part of the same society, right? So it should be about leading with technology, not about sort of trying to stop technology from progressing. 
But that, of course, opens up a slightly different conversation in that debate between finding a balance between progress and conserving what we need. And I've had quite a lot of these conversations recently, too, about always asking why, asking why we've done things the way we've done them before. And quite often we'll find that there are things that we shouldn't be doing anymore, that we're doing for stupid reasons. I was just reading up today about some of the very arbitrary laws that they still have in America, for example, like in some states, you're not allowed to walk around with an ice cream in your back pocket and you have to serve cheese with apple pie. I mean, like there's no, absolutely no reason why we should perpetuate those sort of silly mistakes of the past and carry them with us. But at the same time, there is a conversation to be had about progress for progress's sake, but it's also quite dangerous. Before we adopt and run with things, we have to explore not just can we do them, but should we do them? And I had a similar conversation with Craig Wing recently, who spoke about the sort of the issues of emerging around biotech and genetic engineering and saying there are a lot of things we can be doing, but hold on, before we go ahead and do it, let's ask why are we doing this and if we are actually moving in a direction that we want. And when we try to bring those two worldviews together, we have to find a balance. And that's, that's essentially what we're trying to do between the worlds of technology and the worlds of politics, to ask the question why that works for both of those things, that we're not progressing into bad areas, and that we're also not conserving old mistakes. And I think that you highlighted that and that these some of these perceptions are based on reality. In many cases, lawmakers, policymakers, and politicians are behind the times when it comes to technology, simply don't understand the potential or the peril that these tools can have. I mean, we've all seen those hugely embarrassing Senate hearings in the United States mm -hmm. where policymakers were completely embarrassing themselves talking about the Facebook and such. And how can you lead something that you don't understand? And at the same time, there is actually good conversations to be had around how technology has run away without considering the consequences where it has moved fast and broken things and let someone else to clean up the mess. So from your perspective, what are some of the ways that we can start to bring these worlds closer together? The strengths can be focused on rather than trying to make enemies out of those two different worldviews. How do we find common ground so that we can, as I was saying earlier, start to lead with technology, taking full advantage yeah. of all the tools we have available to us? Yeah, yeah. Such a good and important question. Um, and I think um, there's a few things that um, are important when we try to put it together in a more constructive way. So the first is, I think, just to build on what we were saying earlier, there's a job of education and common, it's more than common language, right? It's common frameworks for thinking about the world as it is today. So, you know, a lot of the work that um, I've been involved in recently around um, how to think about the technology sector, how to think about regulation in the context of, um, you know, new business models and new platforms um, requires you to have different mental models or to understand how an internet business functions and to realize that actually not all of the big technology companies are the same and they're different in amongst themselves as well as being different to startups or different to engineering firms and so on and so forth. Um, and until you have that common intellectual scaffolding, if you like, to think about the problems, then it's very difficult to make any progress on a constructive conversation, right? Because we all argue about, um, you know, based on assertion of like what's gone wrong or what we perceive rather than what is actually happening. And I think just as a sort of side note in here, one of the things which is really important is that technology companies step up and get involved in that education. And one of the things which is really different about the modern world now is um, because technology is such an integral part of our lives, everybody has an opinion about it because it touches us on a daily basis, right? And that includes the politicians. So even the people who are thinking about regulation or policy reform in relation to, um, I don't know, YouTube, it's colored by the fact that they've also got the YouTube app on their phone and they use it as a regular individual human being in a personal capacity. So they have a direct experience of it, but that often is quite different from the analytical understanding that's required to make policy. So there's a job of education, which is made harder by the fact you have to overcome, you know, you're not starting from a blank state, you actually got to overcome people's ingrained perceptions as a user of the app or the service. Um, so I think you do all of that. Um, I think you probably need to be able to um, get some purchase on what the long-term conversation needs to be. So I think that, um, you know, when I observe lots of the policy dialogue around technology around the world, I see most of it kind of 
gets very close to collapsing into sort of fisticuffs because, you know, when you look at the state of politics at the moment, in too many places, um, it's more straightforward and, you know, politically expedient to attack something, particularly if you don't understand it, than it is to try to be constructive about it, right? And you want to extract the fine or the penalty or the ability to say that, you know, you put whoever in their place. Um, and look, I get the politics of that and I understand it. But um, if we were more um, clear-sighted about the fact that this conversation about that we're usually in around, you know, the tech clash is like a minor staging post on the way to a conversation about solving climate change and making sure that all of our kids have access to the best education and ensuring that nobody ever becomes sick or ill of something that was avoidable and all these other you know literally you know like change the course of history type conversations around technology not saying that that's easy or there's a silver bullet for that but we should be putting more of our energy there and do that, you've got to get through a lot of the day-to-day, -day, you know, toing and froing about this stuff. Um, and that's hard, right? That requires um, political leadership. It requires vision. It requires people who can wrap their heads around the complexity and the difficult trade-offs and understanding that you might make some decisions now that are challenging in some ways, but unlock options in other ways. Um, uh, you know, and we could have a whole separate long conversation about why it is that politics today doesn't really create a lot of space for that dialogue. Um, but in the meantime, you know, people who you know are interested or engaged or for whom this matters need to be part of this conversation and force more of that. And you know, combination of vision and pragmatism, I think, um, to get that um, get that to happen. Um, and I think just to kind of wrap this bit up, I think the thing which is going to be interesting is, um, you know, lots of our institutional structures are not designed for those sorts of conversations. They don't have the, the, the muscle memory for them. They don't necessarily have the ability to do interchange between these different worlds. Um, I think that, you know, the countries that are going to make the best fist of this are the ones where um, they're more prepared to experiment, to modernize some other institutions, to bring in different perspectives, to be less obsessed with how we've always done something and more obsessed with how can we make it better, less obsessed with how do I keep everybody in the bureaucracy happy and more obsessed with are we delivering a good service for our citizens, right? A lot of that actually is very much a sort of business or tech mindset. Um, and I think, you know, more people moving in both directions would be hugely beneficial. Yeah, I really like what you're saying over there. And I think we can sort of break this conversation down into we actually kind of having two conversations. Yeah. And there's one one of them that I want to have with you specifically more than the other. And the, the one conversation is, does technology need more governance? And that's a regulation question. But that's not really the conversation I want to have today because I think many people have had that conversation. I think your expertise lies on the other side where it gets a bit more interesting, which is, does governance need more technology? And again, we can break that down into two separate questions again. The one would be, do we need more governance by technology, which becomes once again quite an ethical can of worms. And we, we're starting to talk about things like predictive policing and, and biosurveillance and all those tracking yeah. apps and all those things that get people sort of the hair on the back of their neck yeah. to raise a little bit. But there's that other sub-question of does governance need more technology, which is where I think you've got some real deep insights to look at there. And that is, do we need more technology to help government govern better? In other words, to help government do its job better rather than to use technology to replace governance or use technology for control over the citizen. So that's the conversation I really wanted to have with you. And it's a much more positive conversation than yeah, the other yeah, two. Yeah. The one's about sort of stagnation. The other one's about sort of surveillance and dystopia. Yeah. But this one is about how can we get technology to get governments to do a better job for us? And I think that's something that everyone can get behind. And it's a more yeah. positive way to look at the intersection of those two worlds. Yeah, completely so agree. Yeah, to start that conversation, you wrote quite recently an article about minimum viable governance. And maybe you could just give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what you were getting at there, because that, that got me excited. Instead of feeling yeah. depressed about the future, it was something to yeah. actually get excited about. Exactly. A bit, bit of optimism. So um, in that post, it was really about um, sort of government and politics and political parties and this notion that, um, you know, we talk a lot about 
institutions of the state being artifacts of the previous century, but so are our political parties, right? And so um, what is fascinating to me is that um, there are plenty of people who would say they're in the business of modernizing politics, right? And um, digitizing political parties and helping them to be more, um, you know, be more 2021 than 1991. Um, but then when you really examine it, what that often means is, um, you know, we've rounded up more data on our target demographics and we've like built a better website and we've got, you know, people on TikTok now as well as on Twitter or whatever else, right? Fine, good, and I'm all for most of that. Um, but um, the bit that I think is the big glaring opportunity here is um, for political parties to do stuff as well as just say stuff, right? So when you look at, um, you know, the kind of history of modern technology and the internet, one of the things which is so exciting about it is it took away lots of the permission required to innovate. Um, and, you know, in the most extreme examples, somebody with a laptop and access to the internet could teach themselves to code, build and ship an app and change an entire industry. Um, and I think what people um, would really do well to explore in politics is the extent to which that absence of requirement to get permission is more profound in politics than people realize, right? So we tend to think um, the way that politics and government works is that there's a big contest of ideas when you're not in government, right? You, you make your case, you do the speeches, you write your manifesto, and then when you're in government, then you can do stuff. Then you can prove your competence. Um, and um, you're in this you know, perennial place where you try to win people over with the vision and you've got real, no real way to prove whether you're going to be any good at this thing when you actually get elected, right? And, you know, side note here, you, know, you see the same thing, I think, in you know, lots of the startup sector, right? You can tell quite easily whether someone is smart. It's quite hard to tell whether they'll be any good at running a company. But it's the same, same basic idea, right? So... Um, but of course, what the internet has done, it's, I think, dissolved that distinction. And I think there are many more things that political parties could do, even not in government, to prove they are going to be competent at building services, meeting the needs of citizens, um, be able to wield the levers of power effectively, right? So I no longer need to prove it just by making elegant speeches. I could, because it's the year 2021, start to prove it by building things, right? I could build... Um, uh, if not actual public services, because I don't control all the government, I could build new interfaces to replace crappy interfaces and I could wire them up if the APIs are open enough. I could abstract away lots of the complexity that's in the user-facing parts of government services at the moment and provide that as infrastructure for third parties, right? charities, third sector organizations, social enterprises, to build things on top of that would meet the needs of citizens and consumers. Um, maybe I could start to stand up some platforms and marketplaces where they don't exist or they're not commercially viable, but they would be socially viable and socially beneficial for communities or for towns or cities or neighborhoods. Um, there's all sorts of things like that which are possible, right? You don't need to go and get permission from government. You don't need actually a huge amount of money in the grand scheme of things. You just need, you know, some technical smarts and a little bit of vision. And if you take this all the way to the extreme, you know, you think about what's happening with all the Web3 conversations at the moment. Right? Where is the political party that is issuing tokens to people who join the party, which maybe do something interesting and convert in different ways depending on electoral outcomes or give you the ability to have your say in terms of the party's policy position or how it behaves, right? In a way which is much more fluid than once a year I go to an annual conference and I troop through the thing and I, you know, vote on a slip of paper. Where is the political party which is building a digital twin of the country that it says it wants to govern and is using that to simulate the policies and ideas that it has to prove to people that you'll be better in these three ways and there's going to be this trade-off but we'll manage it like this rather than just asserting that it'll all be okay, right? That is not outside the realms of possibility anymore, but it is quite a long way outside the realms of normal politics. Um, and my hunch is... If you did some of this stuff, you wouldn't get it all right, but it would be a real kind of, um, I think it could electrify some aspects of politics and policymaking in your political debate, because it would be something different to just watching the same people standing on the same podium saying the same stuff at each other 
Because I'm going to ignore all that, and I'm just going to do things that will make people's lives better. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that is all crazy talk, and maybe you know politics can never kind of get that far ahead. But I do think it's worth thinking about. Um, one of the things that I talked about in the post was um, the extent to which your incumbent parties can manage that kind of transition, right? And I think one of the lessons from the journey in tech over the last you know decade or decade and a half is that most of the time what happens is the big um, heavy incumbents have a lot of trouble being nimble enough, being agile enough, being able to innovate in the ways which will help them defend themselves against upstart competitors. Um, my hunch is politics may be in a similar place that for all the talk of wanting to modernize, there's so much baggage and inertia in most of our political parties that it's hard to pull off this kind of change. Um, and I wonder, you know, will it take a new generation of, I think in the post, I call them political entrepreneurs, right? Like the people who you wouldn't see or expect to see in traditional, in inverted commas, politics, you'd expect to find them like at Y Combinator. Um, what happens if some of them decide like, you know what, we're going to use the full might of the internet and a different way of thinking to attack this problem, like orthogonal to how regular political parties go about it. Um, I think it's not implausible that you see some people like that in some parts of the world, probably surprising parts of the world or unexpected parts of the world, pull off something quite exciting over the next five to 10 years because the appetite is there. And at some point people are going to realize that um, actually, you know, we've had enough of people making promises and failing to deliver. What I'd like to do is see someone who's already delivered and then 10 exit with the ability to pull the leaders of government. I think you make a very good point there, but I suppose there's also a risk there, particularly for incumbent political parties and actually for democratic sort of nation states as a whole, because the sort of people that are playing around with those sorts of ideas, that are looking at different ways of governance, that are looking at different ways of even distributing social security welfare nets, they're doing it in borderless, permissionless marketplaces, not for a particular geographic nation state. And the risk for any political party and for any incumbent government, so if you have a border around a patch of land, is that you're going to be superseded by these sorts of systems. And the same conversations are taking place in the realm of finance. But I think it's, it's useful to try and separate the two so you can see the parallels and to see they layer on top of each other as a sort of new operating stack for how we govern and look after our sort of physical and physical security as individuals and as groups. But this whole idea of sort of borderless governance systems that layers on top of all what's going on in the crypto world of crypto yeah. with things like borderless cryptocurrencies, when you start to see that you don't have to have a monopoly on that money or a monopoly on that force in order to fulfill a lot of the roles of government. If I was in the, the realm of Caesar's palace, to put it that way, <laughs> sort of the realm of, of normal governance, I would be concerned about these things because that's outside of your realm of control. And the only way that you can prevent against these very new barbarians at the gate, these borderless, permissionless barbarians at the gate, is to do your job better than what they are promising they can do it for your current constituents. What are your thoughts on that, on the, on the risks of not playing this game or not embracing uh, not just digital digitization of governance, but more sort of digital transformation of how we govern our societies? Yeah, it's, it's genuinely, I think, one of the hardest questions facing governments today because um, you're right, like you want to get your arms around the nation state and exert some modicum of control and set the parameters and then you have these technologies which um you know blow straight through a lot of that um i think that um here's a couple of ways to think about it so one is to say you know what should the model of innovation be in government and what can i i don't want to be right on the cutting edge of this because it's complicated and difficult and dangerous to be right on the bleeding edge and that's usually not where governments are but I want to be something more like a fast follower than I want to be somebody who is resisting change. And so you need the capability in government to be continuously scanning and saying, I'm going to pull the best bits of this in, in order to improve service delivery and the way that I you know, operate and run the country. And you can imagine that in everything from, um, uh, you know, you see these discussions around the world, you know, when will the president get you know, the dashboard for their country that shows the real-time data of how everything is functioning rather than 
finding out three months later from their statistics bureau. Um, whereas if you're in a tech company, you would have live dashboards showing you all of your customer metrics um, in real time. Um, where am I going to be able to you know, pull the best innovations in everything from like engineering to user experience so that when somebody is trying to book a hospital appointment or um, download their kids' school reports or whatever else, that that is as good and seamless and pleasant an experience as it would be if they were buying something on Amazon or whatever else. Um, and I think um, in here, how do you think about the role of government itself Right? And, and the inspiration that you take from all of the technologies that you described where, you know, tr the traditional model of government is I'm a monopoly service provider, right? I, I own the hospitals, I employ the doctors and nurses, and this is where you go. Make the money. <laughs> yeah, all of that, exactly. Um, you know, maybe, like, just maybe, the role of government in this new world is to do things like um, provide, you know, open civic data infrastructure, set standards so that, and you know, create and document APIs so that different parts of government and the private sector can dock into each other. Um, you know, that's a different way of thinking about things that draws from that world, but starts to put it into terms which governments can understand. They still have a role. They still have a purpose, but the purpose is different. The purpose is to enable, not to deliver. Um, and it's generally difficult for a lot of people, right? Because it's not how most bureaucracies have grown up, but it is the kind of pivot that I think will be required in order to stay relevant in this world because I don't think you can fight lots of the developments that are happening online and in the crypto space and everything else. You try, right? But I don't think you'll win. So you've really got two choices. You either sort of fade into um, irrelevance or you try to you know, direct the parts of this that will help you do your job better and stay relevant in a new and different way. The other thing, which I think is going to be interesting in here is the extent to which... Um, you know, because you know you dissolve geography, and because in the world which is largely mediated by software, the economics are completely different. The same that tension about you know lack of borders and loss of control is also a huge opportunity, which is to say, um, if there exists in one country um, a different and massively improved way of delivering a particular public service, it now became it's become negligible to take that approach and clone it into another country and not go through all the pain of working it out and setting it up, right? Um, and you see a very early wave of this happening with, um, you know, over the last decade or so, as lots of government websites around the world have been modernized. Um, and part of that's just been, frankly, designs improved, but also under the hood, lots of stuff's been changed. Um, but what's interesting to me is starting to see governments publish the source code for their government websites, and then other countries can fork the code, not have to rebuild all the design patterns from scratch, not have to like go, you just, you know, you stand it up, change the flag on the front, right? Adjust the language. Um, it's obviously more complicated than that, but you get the picture, right? Which is to say, we haven't all got to do all these things on our own anymore. We can do them together. There's a sort of global commons of software, tools, insights, ways of doing things, which, I think with a fair tailwind could be really, really powerful. And for sure, every country is different, but you can imagine actually that there are lots of things, you know, you still might want to, you, know, you don't necessarily need to smush everybody's identities together, but you can share the underlying tools and technology. Um, and again, the, I think there's some interesting models. You, you look in, particularly in the open source community and in the web three space, the way that, um, you know, huge numbers of people are coming together and are able to collaborate and cooperate and ship real things without formal organizations tying them together. Um, somewhere in there are, I think, some new models for how governments interact with each other, how public servants in different, I mean, even within countries, right? You see different departments usually, maybe usually is too strong, but like often, you know, fighting with each other as much as they're cooperating with each other. But you know, maybe you need different platforms, different modes of interaction, different ways of forming consensus between competing priorities. Um, so I don't think the internet and technology solves all of that, but I think there's a ton of lessons which you know, just need to be properly explored, right? You take the bits that work and junk the bits that don't. 
Uh, just listening, listening to what you said there, I think you also wrote about it previously too, this idea of consensus comes through quite a lot. So whether you're talking about technology for the corporate sector or for the governance sector, I think the concept of consensus and rule by consent and with consent, and whether we're talking about personal interactions or yeah. government versus citizen interactions, it does seem to be an important word as soon as we start to try and conflate the ideas of technology with governance. Because I mentioned previously, it, it is something that scares a lot of people. Because when you start talking about involving more technology into anything, whether it's governance or whether it's into a commercial project, what we're often talking about is automating a lot of our processes. And automating processes is great for efficiency. It's not necessarily great for individuals that are caught up in that system. Because as we've heard time and time again, you can automate efficiencies or you can automate inefficiencies, you can automate biases, yeah. you can automate winners and losers, which is which is also something that I think Dan Fagella, who is one of our other guests on here, spoke about quite a lot. That when you start getting into automated governance, you're having to make calls as to who wins and who loses. So what are your thoughts there around this concept of consent and how we how we manage to to use technology to enhance rather than to destroy that which is i think something that a lot of people are concerned about yeah 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 there's um i think there's huge opportunity here to do the conversations that are required around consent and to gain consensus for change in more sophisticated and um practical ways than we've done previously right so um your kind of traditional model of doing this sort of work in politics or in government is, um, uh, you know, you ask people a bunch of like binary choices, right? Would you like to have more of this or more of that? Or should Red we, or blue, you know, really, yeah, exactly, you know, <laughs> tax rate, this or this, right? And, um, and yeah, that's not a rich enough way to have the conversation about things. Um, or we do, you know, we kind of write a long consultation document, publish it as a PDF. Anybody who's interested can read it and reply and nobody does. And it's not and very three effective. months of spare time to wade through the white yeah. paper in the government gazette. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then you do what they were going to do anyway, because no one responded. So um, all of that, I think um, you said, look, that, I understand why we used to do that in the past, because we didn't have the tools for mass communication and interaction that we have at our disposal now. Um, but there are. I think increasingly, um, you know, the ability to use tools and technology and the internet to bridge some of these conversations in a richer way. So, um, uh, you know, the platforms that they've used in Taiwan for civic engagement that lots of people have spoken about are really interesting. Um, you know, in a nutshell, what they try to do is, um, you know, you take a particular controversial or difficult or challenging topic you try to elicit people's opinions and then instead of doing what often happens on the internet which is um you know we sort of continuous forced polarization of views so you're in this camp or in this camp and i'm going to harden those positions until no one can agree anymore um, what you do if you structure the system properly is you look for the areas where there is common ground and you focus the conversation there and then you help people to understand um, that actually usually there's more commonality than there is dissent and in the areas where there are dissent let's have a more mature conversation about how you trade one thing for another and what the right balance is and you know run that as a process which involves a lot of dialogue and it's highly iterative until everybody's um you know mental models have improved everybody's awareness of different perspectives has improved and we've found a solution which is not perfect for everybody but commands broad enough support to be executed um, and this is the sort of thing which is um much much easier to do at scale with technology than it was before so you can for sure do it um you know in special cases you can convene a citizens assembly you can put 300 people in a um, you know in a big enough room for however long and get them to thrash it out but you can't do that for everything um, but you know you can if you make it something which is not burdensome and is more convenient to people's lives you can make it something which you do push out on a smartphone or through a web browser and you know you have a high degree of citizen interaction uh, with it and that should give governments a richer understanding you know you don't just need to poll people once every five years at the ballot box but actually in something closer to real time you know what is the mood and you know if i'm going to pull this lever who is like say so who's going to win and who's going to lose and how do i think about that and am i okay with it and what mitigating measures do i put in place and so on and so forth um but you know that again requires governments to let go of a little bit of control right it's the same 
as you find in other spheres, right? For this to work, you've also got to be vulnerable. If you go in with a preset notion of what the answer is going to be, and it's all just an exercise in in optics, then people see straight through that. Um, but you know, I think if you're humble enough to do that, right, it requires leaders who don't believe they have all the answers, but rather see themselves as you know the kind of coach or the mentor or the guide for their country. Right? I am your guide to the future, not your kind of person telling you how it's going to be. Then I think you can you can do it. Um, and I think if you do that well, it filters all the way down through um, government. You see some good small examples around the world where um, you know local council is planning to um, you know make a change to its budget, but can't do everything that citizens want. And instead of just having everybody upset because you've got to cut something, you know you put up a thing where there's some sliders, and you say, look, you want to still get your bins collected three times a week. That's fine, but it means you can't have this other thing and help people to understand that um actually, there's trade-offs like, there's kind of everything the exactly <laughs> everything is a trade-off in policy and um if you can you know lift us out of a world where you try to discuss everything in binary terms then um you do better so i think um that's a long way of saying this is important i think there's a big opportunity here i think like a lot of the most exciting stuff actually is happening more in the sort of civic tech and social enterprise space than it is traditional government bodies doing this but you know that's all right right government should be more open-minded about who they partner with government doesn't have to build the stuff it just has to use it well um and you know just so political parties actually i think a lot of them are still trapped in this notion that they're there to serve their members and and you know focus on their members interests and preoccupations and passions and it's obviously an important role for that but no political party in a modern democracy got elected just off the backs of the votes of its members right you've got to actually command broad support and that requires engagement across the spectrum yeah exactly the party parts of democracy is definitely something to question with how democratic it really is in in practice but i think that picks up on what you were saying just a second ago you're we talking about that if you can have sliders and let communities get involved with making smaller decisions then you're not a loser for four or five years in between each election cycle which is what currently happens with yeah. party politics if your party loses you're a loser for five years and everything yeah. you want you're not going to get which is a, a rather long time considering most of us are, are lucky to get to age 80 right so that's a lot of time to be upset if you are able to at least offer people smaller wins along the way, maybe I'll lose this one, but I'll win the next one. Maybe I'll win, I'll, I'll win the, the, the bin fights, but I'm going to lose the bun fights in the, in the supermarket. That's okay. You know, there's a bit of a, a give and take. It does make the whole thing more participatory and more exciting because if you have lost and you, your party lost, you're unhappy with what's going on because this decision is sort of set, you sort of check out of the democratic process, right? You said, oh, well, yeah. we'll worry about that another five years' time. There's nothing yeah, I can yeah. do about it now. It's their, it's their fault. And you almost have this sense where half of society, because let's face it, particularly in more mm -hmm. developed democracies like the UK and the US, yeah. whoever wins, about half of the country is unhappy, not winning yeah, yeah. by huge landslides. You know, like half the country is almost working against success at any given point in time because you want your opponents to do badly so that you can do better in the next cycle. And that's hugely destructive for society and surely there's better ways to do it. I think those ideas of finding consensus across divide and making sure that people can win regardless of which political party is in power is very important for driving that consensus forward. Yeah. But there was another question I wanted to get into you with, with you today, which is a bit slightly in a slightly different topic. It comes back to that idea of sort of more tech and governments, more governance in tech. But here, the question I wanted to get at is more what's going on with the conflation of the roles of government and business? Because when we talk about tech, and you alluded to that just now too, a lot of these programs and software platforms and devices, whatever it might be, when you start talking about tech and governance, they're run by for-profit enterprises. And something that has concerned me looking at the world from a more sort of macro playing field is how by conflating those roles between the referee, which is what government should be, and the players, we're setting ourselves up for huge problems in terms of incentives. So as soon as the referee is kicking the ball, whether that's because government has a share in a for-profit enterprise or whatever the case may be, or vice versa, as soon as the players have a role in the referee's pocket because they're providing a platform, they've won a particular tender, we start to really muddy the field. And things that are concerning are this idea that 
as sort of government decides to embrace technology without necessarily understanding how to do it itself, we do run the risk of that sort of sidewalk labs type, having a, a terms and conditions document instead of a constitution to govern your cities, yeah. which is obviously not necessarily the right way to do that. How do you see in your role in trying to think about the future of governance, how we keep those roles separate, how we make sure that the referee is an honest referee and that the players are actually being governed in our marketplaces because I, I do think although I do tend to sort of skew on the more libertarian field of the, the world of yeah. politics I do fully understand the, the the value of having a strong set of rules and governments in play without that yeah. you don't have any security to move forward yeah that's right and like you say it, it cuts in both directions so you mm. have um sometimes you know, corporate entities exercising power that you think ought to have more democratic oversight and other times you have you know government um, you know, either overreaching or making decisions to do things itself when somebody else would have been better placed to do them on their behalf. So some of the ways that I think about this, I think, you know, you particularly in you know, government and public service delivery, there is a long and checkered history of government outsourcing technology to big systems integrators in a way which was not terribly effective and often absolutely awful value for money. Um, on the other South hand, African. we yeah. understand this. <laughs> so, yeah, we've been through lots of drama in the UK about this as well. And, um, uh, you know, but then you also, you know, you don't want to swing this too far the other way and have governments start to, um, you know, duplicate commodity services that it could quite or easily and effectively. Exactly. You know, so, you know, Europe at the moment is intent on setting up its own cloud infrastructure to compete with some of the big technology companies. And I get the politics of it, but I rather suspect in a contest of who's going to give me the best, most effective, cutting edge and affordable cloud computing software, it's probably still going to be AWS or Microsoft. Maybe not the EU. <laughs> um, so, but somewhere in there, it's like finding where's the edge between what government should buy in and what it should do itself. And I think for me anyway, um, you know, this requires a couple of things. One is right, you need people in government who think in a modern way about service design, service delivery, um, are technically competent at you know, standing up modern digital services, the digital first, not putting a website on an old traditional process. Um, and um, you know, often bringing into government more people with more of the right sorts of technical expertise, right? So when government was mostly about um, sort of industrial, service delivery, like industrial era service delivery, like huge numbers of frontline staff and processes and paperwork and bureaucracy, or when the policy function was basically, you know, sort of be smart and navigate legislation. That was one thing. Now it's become a sort of citizen facing digital service delivery exercise. You need all these sorts of skills in government that you haven't traditionally had, right? You need user researchers and content designers and product managers and all this stuff, which is natural in the technology arena. Um, I think actually, for my money, a lot of that stuff ought to be in government and government should have that kind of capability, not just assume it's going to buy it from somebody else who's going to do you some amazing PowerPoint and tell you what they're going to ship in a year's time. Because the reality is, um, as you know, right, none of this stuff is ever finished. Right? You go and spend any time at a big technology company, and what you realize is you know, they redeploy a new version of their app somewhere between you know, once a week and 12 times a day. But government is often in the mindset, oh, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to finish it, it's done, it's never going to change, I'm going to move on to the next thing. Um, and that's a terrible, if you're going to go in this continuous iteration model, you want the capability in-house, not have to go back and say, well, the previous consultants did this thing for me, I, need, I now need someone to come and look at it again for another year and tell me how I should change it. Um, yeah, that most of that is you can find the technical skills, right? And you can find the people and there are plenty of good, amazing, talented folk who want to do good work and we'll come and do it in government that's not really the problem the problem is leadership and political oversight and backbone for the kind of mindset change that we're talking about for this notion that i'm going to deploy public services being like public beta and it won't be perfect and some stuff will go wrong and then i'm going to iterate it requires you know real political bravery in an environment where the minute anything goes wrong, the entire opposition party and half your own party pile on and say this is terrible and you should resign. 
you need like cover at the highest levels of politics from you know heads of state down who get that we're in a different world now and we're doing it differently and that the best way to meet the needs of citizens is to be brave and to not have all the answers on day one um i think if you get all that right i think you can navigate most of those tensions and i think some of them you know in terms of what you're saying about you know the role of companies versus governments i think some of them you deal with in terms of you know competition and transparency which makes a big difference to you know not just the way that people behave but the perceptions of what is happening um and i think you know part of it comes down to you know being really clear with ourselves about you know the standards to which we're going to hold industry and government itself um and you know we often um you know have struck trouble articulating that or we kind of it gets bundled up into other things like we're having a trade war with this country at the moment so we're not prepared to talk about this aspect of, of technology regulation or we are or we're going to dilute this or that um it's no easy answers but i think you've got to see see it in that different way um and be a little bit um uh, be realistic about it i think the genuinely hard thing in all of here is this question of um web3 and all the things growing out of crypto like what happens when actually um it's not that government has failed in its um obligation to regulate properly or to be mindful but actually like government's authority is fundamentally eroded um how do you still you know remain relevant in that in that space um and um, i don't think anybody's got the answer to that at the moment right it goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier um um flip side there ought to be i think government should be involved in experimenting in that arena um not just looking to squash it um yeah that, that's the thing with technology the harder you try and stop it the the more it becomes your enemy it's like yeah. what what do they say like some of the martial arts right you got to you got to you got to yield otherwise you're going to get crushed yeah exactly and I think exactly having looked at that that whole thing and what's happening with the the web3 and and block blocknet as opposed to internet and all the rest of it i think that the the way the governments survive that is to do a better job which yeah, is yeah. which is quite easy right you just got to yeah. you just got to actually do what people are already literally paying you to do and they don't have an incentive to turn to the other to the other alternatives because yeah. one of the previous guests also on here Simon Dingle is quite very very well, well known and quite yeah. well involved in the in particularly the bitcoins that have built yeah. out space and like as you were discussing like this this really does make paying taxes optional to a large extent to anyone that's even remotely tech and and finance savvy which should be of concern because you know that's that's the alternative but as Simon says you know if if the government is doing something that's worth paying for you're not going to stop paying them for that service i think the onus does fall on governance to actually govern them and i think that we definitely need a more fragile situation here in south africa where we've got problems with service delivery with everything from schools where you can have a cheaper private school than you can actually get an education from the state and you got to pay for your own medical expenses you got to pay for your own private security the the, the incentive to to pay taxes is much less and without that of course that whole social contract falls down because that that's what a nation state is based on it's based on yeah. this idea of give and take and of the citizen getting a service rather than being ruled by governments being served by that government i think governments have to look at themselves very very carefully because if you're not going to fulfill that side of the bargain there's less and less of a reason for people to pretend to fall in with the whole sort of social contract that we've developed this other very the very fragile liberal social yeah. contract that our nation states are built on in the democratic world so it's, it's quite a big challenge but it's also an opportunity yeah. you get it right there's there's no incentive for people to renege on their side of the bargain because the the cost with that is you have to do all those things yourself and if we can yeah. get someone yeah. else to do it for for us we prefer that i think most people yeah. would yeah yeah i i agree i agree and i think um you know one of the things which has changed over the last period of time is like i remember when i would use a government service you know online or on the telephone or whatever else and it wouldn't be as good as what i was used to with some of the other commercial services in my life but i would say you know what you know i get the government is hard and complicated and strapped for cash and therefore i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubts and i think we are now also used to our smartphones being so incredible that when stuff doesn't work first time in government 
where I used to give them the benefit of the doubt, now I say this is ridiculous. It's the year 2021 and I can't book an appointment to see my doctor online or whatever it is. Um, and if there's too much of that, then as you say, people opt out, right? So, you know, and for people who believe in democracy, the big risk is that a non-trivial percentage of the population says, well, what is the point? It's not just that I don't agree with the party, but what's the point of voting if government can't be competent? Um, and, you know, that's not a place we must ever let ourselves get to. And actually, like, you know, it just requires, you know, nerve to be, you know, and determination to focus on the things that matter to citizens, not to continue to protect the way the bureaucracy has always done things. If you get that right, it can be really positive for government. It's more rewarding work for public servants. It's better for citizens and it's healthier for our democracy. Um, just have Absolutely. to embrace it. As, as with most things, anything new, anything to do with progress, it's, it's both an opportunity and a threat, and it's up to you to decide. But with, whether you view it as an opportunity or a threat, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you resist against it and try and pretend it's not there and see it as a disaster, then, of course, all you're doing is strengthening your opponents who see the opportunity and vice versa. If you see it as an opportunity and you invest in what could be good and beneficial for your corner of the world, then that also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think we do have to be more optimistic in general about these things. And coming right back to what we said at the beginning, it's not about being enemies with the different, the different branches of our world. It's about seeing how we can work together. And that's a much more exciting conversation. It's much less depressing than a lot of the other ways to look at the future right now. That's why I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. But I know you've got a hard end in five minutes time. So I want to just give you a last opportunity to have any closing thoughts and tell people where they can find you if you want to be found in our overly transparent world these days. Yeah, fantastic. Look, I um, look, thank you so much for having me. I think this is such an important conversation uh, to be having. I think, um, you know, in terms of pulling this all together, there's obviously huge challenge in here. But there is immense opportunity. And I think not just, you know, it operates on many levels. So it's to deliver better services for citizens, but it's also about um, renewing our political debate and dialogue and discourse. And it's also about starting to, you know, take those first steps towards this future, which is different and better and, you know, neutralizes lots of the issues that we have today and unlocks a huge amount of opportunity and potential for people. Um, so, you know, we should continue having this conversation and I think you know I particular plea is for politicians and technologists right to kind of engage in this dialogue rather than want to um you know continuously you know collapse it into a uh, into something destructive right make it constructive right figure out how we can help and how we partner and how we do things together and learn from each other um so look in terms of our work um look I am around I'm on Twitter and you can find me there um, and the team that I work with at the Tony Blair Institute uh, we do a regular newsletter that's at progress.substack.com um, for the listeners um, so we good. push out essays there about progress and the future and um, you know progressive modern politics um, so love to have conversation and dialogue around that um, you know all of the time so just reach out um, always here and happy to talk thank you so much Chris Fantastic. Thanks for having me.